Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by John McEnroe, Pete Sampras, and Gabriella Sabatini. The New Line sneaker they rolled out is tremendous. It is my favorite walk-around shoe. I rock them all the time. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and turned pro just as apartheid was in its death rolls. At the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, he became the first South African to medal in 32 years. He rose to six in the world, he won 15 tournaments, and posted wins over Borg, Lendl, McEnroe, Sampras, and Fed. He is now the coach of Francis Tiafo. Wayne Ferreira is today's guest. Wayne joined us from the bubble out at the Nassau Coliseum in West Hempstead, Long Island. There he is. Right there. Can you hear me? Cool, man. Nice to see you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Let's do it. Sorry, it might be a little bit of noise around me, but I'm sure it'll be okay. Uh, where are you? I'm actually in the, in the New York US Open bubble. I'm in the hotel at the moment. And that's the Marriott out by the Nassau Coliseum? I'm, I'm at the Marriott, yeah. Are you in your room? I am not. No, I'm actually in the lobby at the moment. You're in the lobby. Cool. Uh, yeah. Gentleman you hear is former world number six, really one of the most famous athletes to come from his country. He really did something special at a pivotal moment in his country's history. That's South African Wayne Ferreira. My man, it's great to see you. And, you know, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm really happy to be on your show, man. Yeah, as we talked a little earlier, we've known each other a long time and been around the game a long time. It's a uh, lot's happened over the years, so it's still fun to be a part of it. As you know, we do a five-set format, but I'm going to knock one set off. I'm going to take one set out because I want to hear about this bubble. So let's just go straight into the second set. It's what we call the on-the-court report. What is the situation? You, you flew in when? So I came in on, actually drove in up on Sunday and uh, it's, they've done a good job. It's actually been very interesting. So I came into the Marriott here, um, had to do a uh, COVID test. I did an antigen and antibody test. I had to go to my room, I had to quarantine in the room. Uh, it took me about 30, 31 hours before I got my test back. So I had to stay in my room for that whole day. Got the test back, was allowed to get my player's badge. I was allowed to then sort of move around the hotel and go to the courts. And 48 hours after that one, I had to do another test, um, you know, to check. And I've done that one now. So I'm, I'm negative on both. So pretty good. So just to be clear, you drove in. Yeah, I was up in D.C. with Francis, uh, Francis Tiafu, who lives up in D.C. We've been practicing up there for the week. So we just drove up from D.C., which was relatively close. So you did the test where they push it back into your nose. Well, luckily, I mean, I've done a whole bunch of tests so far and everything, and I've had them stick, I think, so far up my nose. But luckily, this time, they allowed us to do it ourselves, as long as we got it high enough in there. So we were able to control the pain level a little bit better. Let's just discuss it. Uh, Francis tested positive. What was that experience like uh, as his coach? Was, what was that situation? Yeah, it was, a, it was a tough and an interesting one. I mean, you know, the thing is, we didn't really have any symptoms coming up to the day he had a little bit of diarrhea in the morning of his match, but uh, Francis, for some reason, has a, has a, sometimes a weak stomach, so it didn't really seem like there was anything unusual. But really started to, he was playing a, a match against Sam Query in Atlanta, and at about three all in the first set, he turned around to me and he said, I'm, I'm done, man, I'm toast. I, 
I have nothing left in me. I feel awful. And, you know, we, we weren't really sure what it was, but obviously took a test straight after that, went to the hospital, got a quick test and he tested positive. But it was, it was surprising because we got in on the Friday before he isolated in a house, didn't go out the house. Uh, moved into the hotel, stayed in the hotel, didn't go anywhere. So it was not sure exactly where he got it or how he got it, but uh, he ended up getting it. His brother ended up getting it as well. Um, I was with him that I didn't get it because I've actually had the virus before. So um, I, I didn't get it again. When did you get it? I actually got it in March. So my son was, my son was with me that week. My son and I had it in March. Um, how sick did you get? Um, you know, I was I was feeling miserable for about ten days. Um, I had yeah. uh, had a cough sort of later in the afternoon and felt really sort of tired and sore, like you get with sort of a regular flu. But other than that, not too bad. And so now here we are. You're ready. You're in the bubble. Is the bubble? Is it social? Are people socializing in the lobby? What's it like there? They are. I mean, everybody is required to wear a mask which is good and they've done a nice job because they have a pretty large parking lot out the back they put a nice little uh sort of like tent up there where they've got a lot of spacing between things and, and people can hang out in sort of a lounge format um they do a good job there's a lot of people walking around making sure everyone's got their mask on everyone is socializing social distancing and keeping their distance away from each other um, but you know we we're all we're all still here, and I think the you know the idea that we have all been tested and we're all in the environment and can't go anywhere allows us to maybe be a little closer than we possibly should be out on the street. But they're doing a very good job on monitoring everything. And for our listeners, this hotel is like as in the middle of sort of nowhere as you can be. It's literally next to the Nassau Coliseum, which is the famous home of the New York Islanders. But there is nothing around there, man. Even if you guys, if somebody wanted to sneak out, there's nowhere to go. And there's obviously no value in sneaking out. Yeah, I mean, there really isn't any value of being anywhere. The only, the only sort of downfall of it is it's about a 35 to 45 minute drive to the courts. You know, that's the only issue. But it's not any different than it would be when you're staying in Manhattan through the open anyway. The bus ride is the same. So it's a little bit far from it. But I mean, you know, this is the hotel they use for the, the, the New York 250 that they have in February. So it's a, it's a nice hotel. And, and I mean, look, they've done a good job. I mean, we're, we're not, we're not suffering inside here. They have good food set up for everybody. We can, we can order in, we can, you know, do the Uber all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, you know, it's obviously being a little isolated, not being able to go to the city and do that kind of stuff, but we're not suffering. Yeah. I was going to ask you what the food's like on what you guys eat last night. I actually brought Uber Eats in. I got some uh, Indian food from, from a really cool restaurant close by. So, I mean, you know, you can find the food. You can bring it in. It's not an issue. They do also have, uh, you know, good delivery here. They have food trucks out the back. They have food from the restaurant. So, it's, it's not too bad. You're pleased with leadership, pleased with the USTA? I think they've done a great job. I, they really, really have. I mean, they've put out, you know, it's, it's a very unusual experience going to, to the Flushing Meadows that are at the stage because, you know, the whole outside where all the spectators are is completely empty, but they've done a good job. They put up little uh, putt-putt courses. They've got basketball. They put all these little games and activities for the guys to play. And, you know, they've yeah. made it a really cool environment. It's just a very unusual feeling being walking around there 
always seeing so many people and not having anyone there. So it's, it's nice in some ways because we can do a lot of things outside, but it's also an unusual feeling. Yeah, man. I mean, it looks like they made the whole entire joint at the player's lounge. <laughs> it's like it one is. big, <laughs> yeah. it's, it is, it's, it's a huge player's lounge and they're trying to spread things out. So people don't sort of congregate in the same area. They've got three or four different gyms that they've spread out over the place. So the guys can spread out the gym work. They, you know, they've really thought about this really well and they've, they've executed a good job so far. Now, tell me about your player. Um, he's uh, Francis Tiafo, you know, has been as high as inside the top 30 and he's not played well. I think he's 81 and I just feel like he's a better player than 81. What's the situation? Well, I think for him, he got a little bit too complacent. You know, he came out to the young, he did really, really well, made quarters of the Australian Open. Um, you know, got to 29 in the world and, and kind of thought that things, things, were too, things were too easy, you know, that, that he could just hang out there and not put in the time and the effort, that he could just off his, uh, you know, the talent that he has and his game that he has, that he could stay there and then didn't put the work in, didn't keep working on improving on things and, um, you know, kind of went downhill from there. And, you know, I've come in and realized there's a lot, lot of work to be done on him. He has, you know, he's still 20, he's 22, but he's a young 22. He likes to have fun. He likes to hang out with his friends, joke around. So we're trying to work a little bit more on being a little bit more serious and commitment into practices and to day-to-day routines. Um, you know, so he has a little bit of growing, maturing and growing up to do. But, uh, you know, he's got, a, he's got so much talent. And, and I'm really, really looking forward and excited to see how he can progress. I was getting ready for this interview and I, I, I heard you, I was watching an interview that you did somewhere and, and you said tennis is so different now than it was in the 90s, even in the front of the 2000s. How do you coach? How do you coach differently? Well, I think the style of tennis has completely changed in the sense that uh, the technology of the new strings back in the late 90s and 2000s has changed the game in the sense of the pace that you can get out of the ball so the whole dynamic of the game has changed back in our day we did a lot more hitting of balls on the court we did a lot of sort of outside running there wasn't a lot of investment into the gym and the core now it's become a lot more physical in the sense that the guys are spending a ton more time in the gym doing weights doing uh, core work uh, building on strength um, you know, they're a lot stronger, more physical. So your, your practicing schedules are a lot different. You have to really spend a lot more time on that side. But, you know, in the end, it ultimately still is similar in the sense that you, you know, you've got to have good focus, commitment. You've got to work hard. You've got to be in good shape. And someone like Francis, you know, you know he, has to, he has to be able to come out every day. He needs to be able to put out the energies out on the court, put in the best practices that, he's, that he can and work on the mental game so that when you're playing a match, you don't have these lapses of losing concentration. So there's a lot that's very similar from my time, but there's also a lot that's changed. How can he get better X's and O's strategy-wise? Well, I think day-to-day routines, um, arriving on time for breakfast, um, you know, taking care of things for himself, more responsibilities on and off the court, um, Focusing more, you know, Francis has got a, the most unbelievably cool personality. If anyone knows him, will know that he's the funniest, nicest guy you've ever met. Problem is, he likes to have a little bit too much fun to joke around with people when he's practicing, you know, on the court and trying to get him to just be able to focus on his job at hand. And then when the job is done, he can go and enjoy himself. Uh, don't want to take away his personality because it's absolutely outstanding and he's so cool to be around. 
but he has to learn to focus on the times he needs to be professional when he needs to be and, uh, and try to do his job as, as best that he can. How good can he get? He can be great. He can be great. I mean, I think he's got all of the attributes to be really good. Uh, he's a good physical player. He's very strong. He moves well. Uh, we've been working very hard on his physical so that he can last long in matches. He's got a, a ridiculous backhand. Um, we've been working a lot on the serve on the foreign, which has been improving. We're working a lot on the strategy plays on trying to be aggressive. I think I think he hasn't got anywhere near on his ability, but you know he will only be able to do be as good as he can if he does improve on those little aspects of the game that we've been working on. And the mental side is definitely the biggest. One last question here. Andrea Gaudenzi, uh, I was going through your record, and I obviously saw you beat him in a final somewhere. But you obviously know him. What can you tell me about him and what the back end of this year is going to bring? Well, it's a difficult one for me to answer in the sense of the position that he's in right now. Obviously, I know Andre as a tennis player. I know that he did retire and go back to school and become a lawyer. Um, I don't know his business background and how good he is from that, but I do find it a very unusual or interesting choice um, to be selected to be the CEO of the ATP. Uh, I, I feel like it's a, it's a weird, a weird choice in my mind, but um, he came in at a very unusual time. He's got a lot uh, on his plate at the moment. Um, I think the ATP in general have done a very good job on working through this pandemic process on trying to figure out the best way to approach the game, to get the game back out there, to try to help the players as much as they can in different ways. Um, you know, so I can't, I can't say that he's done a bad job. Uh, it's also an unusual job, but there is a lot that needs to be done in the ATP and a lot they need to fix always had some issues over the years and stuff but you know I give him credit because I think he's done a pretty decent job during this pandemic so far and in regards to the scheduling for the end of the year I'm very happy that we're out here playing I think the schedule is decent for the top players for the rest of the year but it's 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 really only for the top players we've only got one tournament a week they're all going to be in Europe and in and in uh, in Russia um, there's one tournament a week so the top guys that are ranked maybe top 40 or 50 are going to have a good schedule. But for the guys after that, you know, in, in the position like Francis is in uh, at 80, okay, he may be able to play qualities, but there's no other choice for him to go play anywhere else. And I think the guys who are ranked a little bit lower down have, have, have a, a pretty poor schedule for the rest of the year so far. Well, hey, man, let's, let's see what happens here. It seems like we're in a very nimble <laughs> – I think everyone needs to stay nimble for the time being. Look, I mean, these guys are so happy that they have the chance to play right now. And I mean, it's great that we have some tennis and everyone's excited. And, you know, there is a schedule throughout the rest of the year. So nobody can complain. I mean, through everything that's going on, we still have the chance to play, which is good. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Man, I got to ask you, what was it like coming up in South Africa as a young man, as a teenager, on the back end of apartheid? Well, it was difficult for me. I still remember going to Germany when I was 16 years old and going to München Gladbach to go play in a tournament there, arriving and having all of these protesters outside the tournament and me sort of not really having any idea what they were doing and finally realizing that they were protesting the South Africans being there and playing. 
and in the end they banned us from the week and they wouldn't allow us to play and it was a, a very interesting time for me i didn't i'd never encountered anything like that and then when i started playing in the juniors uh, itfs and that i you know i couldn't go to australian open i couldn't go to a lot of the tournaments around the world so my schedule was very short and 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 uh, you know i couldn't go do a lot of the stuff but then on the other hand you know i i i got to be able to do things that no one else did we came back into davis cup in 89 i think it was after being banned since 1971 south africa was banned for apartheid out of the davis cup we came back in 1989 be the first south african to play davis cup for south africa after all that time i mean even though we had to start in euro africa 4 and then also you know privileged to be the first south africans to be able to go back to the olympics so you know even though there were some bad times there were some good times too and for our listeners, just to, for, to give you a better understanding, apartheid was a government plan to keep blacks separate from the whites. And as a result, the, the athletes, the international athletes were penalized across the world. And I remember I was a ball boy in Newport, Rhode Island, and all the South African players when I was a little kid, like Donnie Visser and, and Gary Muller, they were all there because they actually, I believe, were not able to play Wimbledon. They were not able to play there, and they would all come. So it, it was a very hindering thing for quite some time. And I think when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, things started to move very quickly. Yeah, they started opening up things about 89 uh, was when it happened, and then 90 when Mandela came out of, out of prison in 90. And then obviously became president in 94. And that, so that was the time I actually fell into a very good time. And, you know, the guys like Donnie, but even the ones who before me, Johan, Crick, Kevin, Curran, they were really penalized. So Johan and Kevin had no choice to become American citizens to be able to get to play. Uh, and they lost out on some opportunities to go to the Olympics in 88. They lost out of the opportunity of playing Davis Cup. You know, so I came in, I was opportune time really where it was the end of apartheid and I was able to at least fulfill my career as best that I could. And, you know, it was an interesting time. I mean, there was, there was a lot of bad and a lot of good out of it. it was, there were some special times being, being able to go back and do Davis Cup, being able to go to the Olympics. But obviously there were a lot of changes back then. And, and it was, I tell you what, now looking back at it, it was, it was great to be part of, of the transition of, of how South Africa moved from, from what it was to what it is now. Uh, Chuck Adams uh, and I were talking yesterday, and he said he that he he understood or he thought that you were like politically connected, that you knew Mandela. Uh, is that true? I met him a, fun, a bunch of times. Yeah, I wouldn't say we were, we were connected, but we had we had encounters together, and he was an amazing man. I mean, he knew everything about me. Every time he met me, he knew what I was doing. He loved tennis. He followed it a lot. Uh, very knowledgeable. I mean, he was a, he was a great man. He really, tr you know, tr uh, changed the country in, in a very positive way. I mean, you know, the transition period when he came in and the time that he was president was probably the best time that the country had. Now, with regards to your tennis and tennis in South Africa, how did you get good? How did you become a pro tennis player? But I don't know. That's a tough one to answer. People ask me now with my kids growing up and people, how do you do it? Who knows? Man? I heard you say in an interview that back then you guys had a robust federation and that you were, you had a, you had a good opportunity. Your federation got you good, that you, you were funded. 
Is that all true? Yes, I mean, I think it's true. I mean, I, I had a very unusual upbringing in the sense that I played uh, soccer, cricket, squash, badminton uh, when I was a kid growing up, along with tennis. And I gave up all of them and really only started to focus on tennis when I was 13 and, and, and did that. And then there was the time when uh, military service was mandatory. So at 16, I, I gave up my last two years of high school and went into the Air Force. And I think that was the telling tale for me because I went into the Air Force along with literally almost every tennis South African at that particular time. Gary Mallow, you talk Pity Norval, Neil Broad, I mean, Stefan Kruger, you look at all of the good tennis players back in that time. We all went in at exactly the same time to be there together, to train together. And for two years while we were in the Air Force, we had an academy where there were about 12 of us go every day and practice and train together. And I think that was the key for us all right there was the fact that we were all together. And what was interesting about it, there was one period of time where we had 11 South Africans ranked in the top 100 in doubles, and eight of them came from, from our military service days. So it was an amazing time. And I think that was what helped me because that turned me more professional. It made me play every day, spend the time investing myself uh, into the game. And, and I think that was the biggest help for me. So hang on a second. So you guys went to go do your military service. You went to the Air Force. And you guys finagled a tennis camp out, a high-performance camp throughout those two years. Yeah, we all went to different. Some went to the Army, some went to the medics, some went to the, uh, the Air Force. And then, but basically, we would go do our work during the day. We would get up and do what we needed to do. And then at 4 o'clock every afternoon when our day was over, we would all meet. Um, and we would have an academy for two and a half hours and we would we would go from 4 30 to 7 whatever and do all of our tennis so every day we were able to have two and a half hours together after work and uh and, and do our tennis so it, it was it was a good time it was a and you, looking back at it right now it was probably one of the best times of my life one of the best times of your life hanging out with my friends practicing every afternoon being part of something unusual i mean it was a it was a good time you put on the army fatigues so you had you had to wear the uniform Absolutely. I did my six weeks basic training. Uh, I had to make my bed every day, clean my bottles, do all my stuff, did everything that I needed to do. Now it was a little bit different because we were not permanent force. We were just in, in, a, in doing our two years. Um, they had two sections, one's one, one doing the, you know, the mandatory service and then you all, I had the permanent force. So we were a little bit less important, but uh, we did mostly everything that other people had to do. Um, yeah, and at that stage it was mandatory, so we had no choice. Was there um, a player or a coach that did that help get you much better? Well, I do have to, there was a guy, Charlie Taylor, who I started getting lessons from when I was 10 and 11, and he was very good fundamentally. He helped me very, very early on, on, on the right fundamentals. But when I did go to the Air Force for those two years, the tennis union actually employed two, player, two coaches, a man named Corbis Porter, and another man named Keith, Keith Diprom. Keith Diprom played Davis Cup for South Africa in the 80s. He was a great tennis player. And, and they, were, they were paid by the tennis union to come to the academy in the afternoon and, and work us out. After I did finish in the military, I did go on, a, on two years um, part of the tennis, tennis South Africa and had Keith Diprom as my coach. And then I hired him for another four years. So he was probably instrumental in me at my early ages of getting me to, to onto the tour and, and the first four, four years that I had on the tour. Because, I mean, if you look at your, it's like 89, you, you start playing pro tournaments. 90, you crack the top 100. 91, you're in the top 10. 
you went fast, man. Yeah, it went very quick for me. And this is the thing is when people ask me, how do you do it? You know, I don't really know. It's a difficult one. I mean, I, I competed well. The thing that I did really well, which, which helped, is that I, I, I won a couple of – I made semifinals of two challenges when I was 16 years old and got some points. And those points allowed me to get into the qualifyings of tournaments like the Washington, D.C. or the Indianapolis Five, which are, I think, 250s or 500s back in the day. And I qualified and won a few rounds. And then I, my first U.S. Open, I qualified. So, you know, I just did really well at an early age. And I don't know why or what were the reasons for it, but it was very easy for me. Man, again, talking to Chuck, he said he, said he saw you at Philly and you just blew through qualies, thought you were physically way more strong than other guys that were in his age group. You know, you guys are about the same age. You played a ton of tennis throughout your career. I mean, you played almost every single week. What was the thought there? Probably, probably a mistake. If I look back at my career right now, I would say the biggest mistake that I was that I made was I took I played too many tournaments. I wanted to just win all the time, and I wanted to play all the time. So I didn't really put an emphasis on on the tournament from one to the other. And I played too much. I think I traveled too much. And I don't think that I, I focused my attentions on the Grand Slams as much as I could have. So even though I did play a lot and I enjoyed playing and I stayed very, very healthy. I didn't have a lot of injuries uh, throughout my career. I was, I was very healthy throughout. Um, maybe if I scheduled a little bit better and put a little bit, played less and put more focus on the Grand Slams, maybe I would have done better in them. But look, it's all hindsight. You know, I had a great career. I'm happy with it. I'm not going to take anything back. Hey, man, you got to six. You beat everyone from Lendl to Federer, man. I mean, that's, like, unbelievable. I will ask you, though, you rarely lost to players below you, and you had a tough time with the players above you. You never beat Andre. What kind of player gave you the most trouble? Well, the, I think the players who were base, more baseline players, like I had a hard time with Andre and Michael Chang. Those two types of players were, were tough, especially the ones that had good backhands. My weakness, I think, was my backhand a lot of the time. Um, I struggled a little bit with the backhand up the line. And I, if I'd had a better backhand up the line, I could have done better against Andre because I needed to get to his point a lot more and didn't really have as many opportunities to do that. So I did really well against the servant volleyers, the guys like uh, Sampras and Krejcik and Becker or Edberg, all of those kinds of guys, but did much worse against the... the the baseliners or the clay court players. You beat Sampras six times. Did you love to play him? It seemed to me, just looking at that record, you were six and six. Seemed like you gave him a lot to think about. Yeah, I mean, again, it's matchups. I mean, matchups were important. I returned exceptionally well. It was the strength in my game where it worked well against a guy like Pete, but obviously not as well against a guy like Andre. Um, so back in our day, there was a very specific different types of players with the way that they played and matchups played a huge part. Today, it's much less because guys are generally more baseliners and there's less serve and volleyers. Um, maybe my game would be different today from the way that I played. But, you know, I did do, definitely do better against the, the, the serve and volleyer chip and charges uh, than I did against the baseliners. You were out on tour with a lot of great countrymen and also country women. What was, you know, Amanda Kutzer got to three right in that pocket of your best years. Was seeing the success of some of, some of those women interesting or useful 
You know, it was different in the time right now. The tennis today, the men and women are very mixed. Most of the tournaments throughout the year are pretty much together and they, they socialize a lot more and spend more time together. In our time, the only time we ever really saw the girls was really over the four Grand Slams. And um, I knew Amanda, I played Hopman Cup with her and we had a great time, but you know, we never really saw each other that much to become as good of friends as, as we would have liked to. I, we, we got along well and we had a great time, but I barely saw her. But I, you know, it, it was great for tennis in South Africa, just in general, to have her and I doing so well, being ranked in the top 10 for as long as we can, as long as we were. It, it really helped in, you know, boost tennis in the country. Last question. How would you describe your pro career to, you know, maybe someone that doesn't know a lot about you? I think I had a very successful career. I mean, number six in the world. Um, you know, I won two 1000s and got a silver medal in the Olympics. Um, you know, some people always say, oh, well, you could have done a lot better. I, I also could have done a lot worse. I think my career was very successful. I played 16 years on the tour. Uh, loved what I did. I had a great job. Um, I loved my time doing it. Uh, I have no regrets on it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's sad that it has to be over, but I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I have so many good memories and, and really enjoyed my time while I was doing it. By the way, um, Evgeny Kofelnikov said that he loved playing doubles with you. You said that you guys were a lot alike and that you just really enjoyed being on the court with you. We played a lot of doubles together, but we actually, we actually spent a lot of time together and we played a lot of golf together, him and I. We spent a lot of time together off the court. I enjoyed my time with him. He loved his golf. I loved my golf. We would, we would spend travel a lot and play a lot of golf and a lot of tennis. And, you know, our doubles was fun. We, we were good friends. We enjoyed ourselves. We were successful. We had a good time. I, I, I miss him, actually. I wish I could see him more often. But he was one of the guys on the tour that I, that I really enjoyed spending time with. Who do you retain as uh, close friends from, from tennis? Uh, most of the South African friends who I traveled with and played with back in the day, as I said, you know, we had 11 guys in the top 100 in doubles and those guys all traveled and we spent a lot of time together and I see a bunch of them still around the tour. I, I talk to them, talk to a lot of them still, but I'm mostly the friends that I have are still my South African friends. Now, I was told your son is a great athlete. Does he have a shot? Is he going to try to, are you going to try to turn him pro? No, no, he's more no. invested into the academics. He's at a great college. He's on the tennis team. He's loving it. He's having a wonderful time. But uh, his investment is a little, at this stage, a little bit more on the academics. He knows how difficult it is to turn pro and he doesn't really feel that he wants to put in the, the actual absolute effort to be able to get there. So he's going to focus on academics. Hey man, nothing wrong with that. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say it and you say what comes into your mind. It's oh, a word wow. association, yeah. okay? Put, put me on the spot, all right. No, it's all right, though, man. It'll be good. Well, where do you keep your trophies? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're all boxed up into the storage because we moved a couple of years ago and put them in storage and haven't got them out. So they're in a storage facility in California. Come on, man. Uh, where, do you save your credentials? No. What do you do with them? I throw them away. Your whole career, you just toss them? I tossed them, and, and that's a big mistake, but I unfortunately tossed them. Your best win? My best win? Oh, that's a very difficult one. I'm, I'm actually very proud to say that I've had wins over Borg, uh, Lendl, McEnroe, Sampras, Federer, so all, uh, Yannick, no, I've, I've, so I'm going to take every single one of those legends as my best win.
your worst loss? Is there one that you just wish you could get back? Was there one particular match? Yeah, I think my quarterfinal match with Agassi at the Olympics. Um, I served for the match in the third set and ended up losing that match. Also considering the fact that the umpire had uh, defaulted him for the match for his, for his behavior. Uh, he actually got physically defaulted and the, and the umpire said game set and match. And then the tournament director came on and changed his mind and, and, let, and allowed him to stay. So that one haunts me because that should have been a win for me. And I think if I'd won that, I probably would have maybe won the gold on that one. Oh, man, that's when Andre was acting bad. Your favorite tournament? I'm going to go with Wimbledon only because when I was a kid growing up, we had one TV channel and we didn't get to see much. And the only tennis event we ever saw as a kid growing up was Wimbledon. So Your Wimbledon favorite? was always there for me and I've enjoyed my time there. And even though it wasn't my best results, I think just from a kid and growing up, I have to go, for that. I have to go with that one. When you set your feet down at Wimbledon, there's nothing like that. Yeah, there's nothing it's a special like place. Very special, it's a special place. place. Your favorite city? Oof, uh, yeah, I'm gonna say Cape Town. Your favorite forehand? My favorite forehand is a running forehand up the line. Your favorite backhand? One that I get into the court. Your favorite serve? Out wide on the juice. Out wide on the juice court. What players' volleys do you love the most? Edberg. Edberg's volleys. The best endorsement deal you ever had? Oh, I've been very fortunate. I've been with Dunlop and Felis since I was 18 years old. I've been with one company for rackets and one company for clothes, and they've been good to me while I played. They're still good to me today. They still give me stuff, and I have, great, uh, I have, a, I have a great relationship with Marty Mulligan. Uh, I just spoke to him this morning. We just yeah, spoke to him this morning. Fantastic man, and uh, I love him dearly. And and now his son Martin is coming into Fila. So uh, yeah, it's just had a great relationship with those two companies. Let's move into our fifth and final set. We call this the King of the Court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport with no real aggravation, just you know, one swing of the racket, what would it be? Oh. That's a tough one. I mean, I think I wish that we could change the game a little bit to allow people the opportunity to serve and volley a little bit better. How they do that, I don't know, but with the technology. But that would be fun to see people come to the net again. That's it. You know, it's interesting. I just spoke to Roman last week, and I asked him if the technology has almost hindered the, the sport. And... You know, he kind of thought that the rackets were becoming more flexible and stuff, but it almost seems that you can't serve in volley, and it almost seems that you almost can't control volleys in general because the balls are just getting ripped. The technology of the strings, I think, was the key is because you get so much power out of the ball that you're able to generate a pace from, from any stand or any place on the court, which you couldn't do in the olden days. And then the other thing, too, with the polyester strings is that there's not a lot of feel on it, so... It's much harder to volley with. So there's two different things to it. One is the power coming off the ball, allowing you less time to come to the net to have easier volleys. And the second is the, the, the strings are just much harder to control. Hey, man, I uh, can't thank you enough. This was a tremendous chat. I appreciate you joining us from the bubble and giving us a feel for what that's like. 
you guys are in the main draw Cincy and then yep. main draw US Open. Yeah, it's a good thing you did, we did this at the beginning of the bubble because I might be a different person being here a month later. Months in this might be a little bit too long, but thanks for the It's been really a pleasure to, well, actually, to see you again after all of these years and have a chat. And hopefully this, uh, this time in here will go well. Hey, man. Good luck and go win the tournaments. Um, Wayne we'll Ferreira, you are released. Thank you. Thank you. Huge thank you to Wayne Ferreira. And thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 at checkout in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. We just re-upped the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the quarantine classic, the greatest tournament to never be played. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrebat 2, and the Ver, which is green. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.